بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى والصلاة والسلام الأتمان الأكملان المتلازمان على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم وبعد الحمد لله this is our final class for module 7.1 family laws module 7 so that includes 7.1 marriage 7.2 divorce 7.3 family ties birrul walidain filial piety family relations stuff like that so the next modules after this may only span one class or two classes at the max but this will be of course the longest out of module 7 bi'ithnillah and so far, in the beginning of Module 7, concerning marriage, we talked about the meaning of nikah in the Arabic language, as well as the meaning of nikah in the Sharia. And we talked about the ruling on getting married, the manners of proposal and seeking to get married, how to go about it the right way. We then talked about kifa'ah, or suitability, what are the markers or standards of suitability between the uh, groom and the bride. Then we talked about the prerequisites and pillars of marriage, meaning those things that have to be in place for the marriage to be sound, for the contract to be valid. And then we talked about some of the contractual details. A lot of the stuff we talked about last week was very unromantic because fiqh is not romantic and the books of fiqh are not love letters they can be very technical and dry but we have to know the basics so that we establish the rights that others have over us and also so that we ensure that whatever we're doing we're doing it in the halal way and that our contracts are valid so today inshallah we want to cover two things we want to cover the mahar and we want to cover rights and responsibilities. Now last week we talked about the mahar a little bit as a condition, as something that has to be in place for the marriage. At the time of the marriage, uh, part of it given or, in half, or, or some of it deferred or all of it given. But we want to talk about the mahar in a little bit more detail. And then we want to talk about the rights and responsibilities. So let us go back to Khalid. And I'm still waiting to see our Khadid, but he's not here. So going back to that imaginary scenario, Khadid was told about Layla. Someone told him about her, and he was interested in marriage. I guess he saw her at work or school or something, and he had an interest. So what did he do? He did the right thing by going to Abu Layla, the father of Layla, he didn't try to establish secret ties and chatter up and do this and that the wrong way. He did it the right way. He went to the father and he spoke about his interest. And Khalid has Muslim parents, as does Layla. So the parents of both Khalid and Layla met and spoke together and they arranged for the two to meet. They got to know each other in a halal way over some time. They made istikhara about whether this is the right thing to do and they both decided bismillah let's move forward with this marriage so they set a date for marriage in the future and the hall was rented the catering service has been hired we all mentioned this last week 
Now what? Khalid, we're continuing this journey of Khalid and Layla getting married. Khalid and Layla's family came together with friends and relatives at the wedding hall. The catering service was ready. All the food was there being heated up. It was ready to be eaten. And the friends are there. The relatives are there. Layla's father is there. He's the wali. And he brought two witnesses to serve as official witnesses to the wedding. And in that wedding, the imam came and he oversaw the whole process where Khalid did the ijab, the proposal, and Layla did the qabul, the acceptance, in return for a particular amount of mahar, dowry. And here in the slide, it's blank because that's what we want to talk about. What exactly should he give her? Now, they're going to settle on that before they get married. She's going to give him the amount that she's requesting before they get married. And that will likely be in the written contract. Or it's at least communicated that the both of them agreed upon it in front of the witnesses. What should he give her, though? Now, the mahar, we also call it the sadaq. It is defined as the wealth that the wife deserves from her husband when entering into a marriage contract with him. And this is mentioned in a few ayat of the Quran. We have in Surah An-Nisa, nihla." Give women their due dowries gracefully. Likewise, وَأُحِلَّ لَكُمْ مَا وَرَاءَ ذَلِكُمْ and tabatagu bi amwalikum muhsinin. Lawful to you are all those beyond these. After mentioning the prohibited classes that cannot be married, he says, Lawful to you are all beyond these, as long as you seek them with your wealth in a legal marriage. So the, the mahar is mentioned in this verse. And Allah Ta'ala mentions the purpose of the mahar as well. What's the purpose behind it? In the same chapter, Allah Ta'ala says, Give those you have consummated marriage with their due compensations. This is ujur. Ujur or ajr we think of as reward, but here it means compensation. Imam al-Qurtubi comments on this verse in his tafsir, and he says that the term consummated here means sexual enjoyment. And compensation means the mahar, the dowries, as the dowry is compensation for the right of istimta'a, sexual enjoyment. It is a contract, after all, where there is proposal and acceptance between two parties in return for this dowry, this wedding gift, there is this exchange, right? It sounds very dry and businesslike, but it's like that. It's a literal contract where two parties agree that they will be betrothed in marriage and in return for the husband giving a determined portion of money, a mahar. So someone had asked this, I think, a couple of weeks ago about the issue of the mahar and its legal status. And the fuqaha say that the mahar is wajib, is obligatory, and that it is not allowed for the wife to opt out of receiving a mahar. She cannot just say, I just don't want a mahar. She has to stipulate something. And we'll talk about what's that minimum. The basis of the mahar is what the two parties agree to. 
So the idea here is that the two should be in some discussion about what the mahar will be. It's up to her to decide, ultimately. She can mention an amount and he either agrees to it or doesn't agree to it and suggests something else that she may agree to or not. Ultimately, it has to be decided between the two parties. And there's nothing in the sharia which puts a ceiling on how much she can ask. Could a woman theoretically ask for $5 million? She could. I'd like to meet the guy who would accept that as a mahar though, because it's, it's a high mahar for sure. But there's nothing shara'an, legally speaking, that would make that prohibited. It is discouraged. It's discouraged, and there are texts to that effect. But legally speaking, there is nothing to say that it's haram for her to name a very high price. And there's ijma' about this. But when it comes to the minimum, that's where you have some differences. If, the, if there is no maximum amount that she can ask for, is there a minimum that she can ask for beneath which she cannot ask for? I mean, what's the bare minimum that he can give her as a mahar to get married? There are a few differences among the madahib about this because it's always, it's never about finding a particular hadith which says the minimum mahar is this amount. It's looking at the orf of the people, it's looking at the purpose of the, the mahar and what will be deemed a bare minimum. So some say that it's a quarter of a dinar or three pure silver dirhams or whatever item is equal in value. So I did the math for you and I calculated the price of gold and silver as of I think this Monday or Tuesday. The current value at least on Monday or Tuesday was $57 per gram for gold making the minimum mahar $115. That's a, that's a low mahar. That's a low mahar. And most, most dowries are a bit higher than that. right? Even the lower ones tend to be 500, you know, so that's the bare minimum. It is recommended to be moderate with the mahar, and the mahar of the Prophet wasallam was around 500 dirhams. The hadith mentioned that, and if you calculate that, it's about $1,000. So $1,000 is not necessarily a small amount, it's not necessarily a high amount either, and it's all relative to the person and their own social economic status. If the two are from a very high socioeconomic status where $1,000 is it's like loose change, then likely she's going to ask for more. But by the same token, him being on a so higher socioeconomic bracket, fulfilling that would not be the same as a person working minimum wage being asked to pay a $25,000, $75,000 dollars So it's all relative, but the ideal is to have uh, moderate mahar so that the woman receives a, a good amount but not so much that it makes marriage difficult because the man is not just thinking about the mahar he's got to think about the place he's got to think about all the items in the house he's got to think about other things to sustain that family this new family so the mahar is just the first thing he's paying because he also pays the maintenance, the nafaqa that we'll be talking about soon. So it's ideal to have it at a, as, at a moderate price. Now, that's all we have to say about the mahar. 
and that's always open to discussion and back and forth between the prospective broom and bride. We now talk about the hukuk. So let's say that Khadid paid Layla, she, he gave her, let's say, $2,000 for Mahar. Okay. That was stipulated in the contract. They both agreed to it. This was all witnessed, and now they are husband and wife. Alhamdulillah, now they're married. Now what? Now they have entered into this bond of marriage. It has been consecrated through the process of nikah, this contract, witnessed by multiple parties. This is now a contract binding them and entailing certain rights and responsibilities. The husband has rights, the wife has rights, the husband has responsibilities to the wife, and the wife has responsibilities to the husband. So the aqdun nikah, this marriage contract, is an exchange, it's a transaction. And all transactions come with rights and responsibilities. There are terms to these contracts. Now, in terms of sharia, fardain knowledge, the kind of stuff that we're trying to learn here, we understand that there is going to be a minimum threshold for rights and responsibilities that we have to know. But ideally, we're going way beyond the bare minimum. And I want to emphasize this point because it is not uncommon for people to read legal text in Islamic law about the rights of marriage, the rights of the husband, the rights of the wife, and so on, and they take them to be ideals. But what you're reading in the books of fiqh are usually the bare minimum, the, min the minimum threshold. If you go below that threshold, you would be entitled, or your spouse would be entitled to take you in front of the qadi, the judge, and demand that you fulfill the rights. So we don't want to be at the minimum threshold. We want to know the threshold so we don't dip below it, but ideally we want to strive to go far above and beyond that minimum threshold. But that's where we have to start. So as I, I'm always fond of mentioning this example, if you go to the books of fiqh, especially the ones written in the pre-modern period, say four, 500 years ago, they were written in a very different context, in a different uh, nature of society as compared to today. And they are describing what was in their time the minimum threshold by their urf, their regional urf, their custom. Sometimes those books get translated because they're classical texts. But when the teacher explains those chapters, they contextualize those in the present day. But if you don't have a teacher and you just read the text that was written 500 years ago, uh, as a husband, you could say, here is your summer coat, your, your summer outfit rather. Here is your winter coat, uh, the new one I give you every year. Here are your shoes, here's your comb, here's your brush, here's your bag of barley. I have fulfilled my rights. Ma'as-salama. That is not a recipe for a happy marriage. Whether it's the husband appealing to that or the wife appealing to her side, that's not a recipe. But we describe those uh, bare minimum so that we know. Marriage conflicts are seldom fixed by the bare minimum approach, the minimalist approach to giving rights and uh, responsibilities. 
this idea that we're going to have a happy marriage if we just fulfill the rights at a bare minimum, that is a delusion. So I mentioned that as a caveat before we look at these rights and responsibilities. Now, when the fuqaha talk about rights and responsibilities, they often talk about the rights and responsibilities that are mushtarak, meaning they're, they're shared between husband and wife. So both the husband and the wife have these rights and these responsibilities towards the other. And then they talk about the rights and the rights of the husband and then the rights of the wife. Whenever you hear rights of one party, that means it's the responsibility of the other party to render those rights and vice versa. So the rights of the husband become the responsibility of the wife and the rights of the wife become the responsibilities of the husband to fulfill. These, what we have here in the slide, are the responsibilities and rights that are shared between the two. Number one, sexual access. Sounds crude, but that's what it is because nikah in the Arabic language means jima'ah, it means intercourse. And the contract of marriage is a contract that legalizes this uh, sexual enjoyment between husband and wife. That's what it is. So that is at the top of the list. If one does not have that access, why are they married? Why? What's the purpose? Right? If you cannot stay in the halal through the marriage, then why stay married? That's the ultimate objective, is to preserve both parties from falling into the haram, and then to produce offspring, and increase the size of the ummah of the Prophet so sexual access is the right of the husband and the wife. And we're going to go through some of these uh, individually in more detail. Uh, mutual rights include mutual respect and good treatment. Ihsan. Ihsan is not doing a favor to your husband or to your wife. It's a duty to go out of your way to treat them excellently. And if you're not doing that, you know, because things happen, right? There's marital discord, sometimes there's arguments or fights. That should be the rare exception. That should not be the norm. Likewise, among the rights that are mutual between them, receiving inheritance share when the spouse dies. Like, that's your right as a husband. If your wife dies, there's a certain share. And if the husband dies, the wife gets a certain share. That's because you are joined in bonds of marriage. Likewise, keeping peace and respect with both sets of in-laws. This is mentioned by some of the fuqaha when they talk about the rights of the husband and the wife. They say it is the right of the wife that the husband tries to avoid getting into fights with the in-laws. And it's the right of the husband that the wife doesn't try to stir conflict with his parents. And that can be a very touchy subject because different cultures have different ways of relating to the in-laws after marriage. You know, in some cultures, you only visit the in-laws for Thanksgiving or on the rare occasion, right? And for others, it's every Saturday with your child. You know, you, you, you visit the in-laws, it's cultural norm, but you're, or maybe even they're living, you're, you're living with them, right? So these are things that have to be navigated, and there's certain cultural expectations and norms from one place to another, but that's a basic right, regardless of where you are, is that you keep the peace, that you don't denigrate, or insult, or fight with your wife's in, uh, parents and the vice versa. Uh, likewise, the, a shared right and responsibility between the husband and wife is raising their children. 
It's not the job of the wife totally. It's not the job of the husband totally. Is both of their jobs. And that is a right and responsibility on both of them. So looking at the first aspect, this sexual access, the rights and responsibilities, we said that, that number one is sexual access. Marriage, of course, legalizes sexual intimacy between spouses. And the fuqaha define this. They give a lot of detail to what that entails. And they say this is something that is applied to every time in every manner that is not prohibited. So the access is not uh, limited to one time and not another time, or one place, not another place, or one mood and not another mood. No, the access is any time in any manner, as long as that time and manner is not haram. Of course, there's negotiation and there's romance and all of that, but we're again talking about basic legal terms. And what that means is that the only things that are prohibited are what we see in this list. Anal sex, sex during menstruation or nifas, postnatal bleeding, sex while the wife is fasting or while in ihram or i'tikaf. Everything outside of that is halal. Now, some people may have questions about specifics. Maybe they're too shy to ask about those things in this setting. We have this thing called Ask the Imam. It's totally anonymous. You're free to ask about the details regarding these matters. Haya in these matters is normal uh, for a sound fitrah. However, if there's a question that needs to be answered, it's not from Haya to avoid getting the answer if it relates to Islam. So I, I put that out there for anyone who wants to ask. Uh, that's basically it. Now, sexual access at any time outside of the prohibited times and circumstances is a right of the husband. And sexual access is also the right of the wife. The fuqaha mentioned, and this is across the madhahib, I've seen it in all of the madhahib, they say that if the wife complains to the qadi, the judge, that the husband is not giving her her conjugal rights, any sexual access, it is said that the qadi tells the husband by order of the qadi, he must, by decree, judicial decree, he must at a minimum have intercourse once every four days. This is mentioned in multiple madhahib. Why do they say four days? I'll let any of you take a guess. Four wives. Because the most a man can have is four wives, and if he has four wives, then uh, each would get a turn after the other, so that's once every four days. That would be seen as the minimum for the wife who has to complain to the qadi. So, but of course, these things come with the mutual understanding and the ups and downs that come with life and being busy. You know, so if you can avoid having to go to the qadi, that's best, right? I mean, if you're going to the qadi, that's not a good sign to begin with. But this again describes bare minimums in a fiqhi context, human life is a lot more messy and complex than can be boiled down to a fiqh text. These are guidelines. Now, we'll start with the rights of the husband, and then we'll talk about the rights of the wife. And some of these can be, I mean, we have a list here, 
And some of these can be joined together, some can be split apart. You'll get different lists, but they all come down to the same basic points. So the rights of the husband, some of which we already talked about. The sexual availability of his wife. Her attention and good treatment. Her loyalty and honesty in the home. Her obedience in everything that is lawful and good. Managing and maintaining the home. And we'll talk a little bit about these in some detail. Getting his permission before leaving the home. Her protecting his wealth and belongings in his absence. Her preserving his chastity, it should be her, that's a typo. Preserving her chastity and honor in his absence. And not admitting people into the house without his permission. That's the gist. Now we'll look at some of these in detail, right? And then we get to the rights of the wife, and that's, that's pretty much our class. So looking at the rights of the husband, number one we said is the sexual availability of his wife. That's a mutual right between husband and wife. And the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith, many people know this hadith, he says, when a man calls his wife to his bed and she refuses and he goes to sleep angry with her, the angels curse her until the, until the morning. Now, you know, we're living in a very distorted and uh, inverted time where people get uh, triggered and upset by certain hadith. And certain people say, how dare you use this hadith or how dare you use it against the wife? Uh, it's not that people should use hadith as weapons when they're in a fight. I don't think that's a healthy way to have a discussion when you're arguing with someone that you throw a hadith out like that because you should really guard the sanctity of the words of the Prophet and not use them when you are in a state of anger. This is a general principle. Imam Madik, for instance, would not narrate the hadith of the Prophet when walking in the marketplace. Because there's a lot of noise and hustle and bustle and people are arguing. He wanted to have the hadith narrated in an atmosphere of sakina, right? Likewise, you know, there's a common practice in the Muslim world, especially the Arab world, I, I, I know, I haven't seen it elsewhere, where if you're arguing with someone in the suq or somewhere, someone will come and say what? Sallu ala nabi. You've heard this, right? It's very common. They'll tell the person or people arguing, uh, send salat upon the Prophet The idea here being that by sending salawat, it will calm them down, which is true in general. However, Al-Imam Al-Nawawi, rahimahullah, he mentions in his adhkar that this is prohibited because you could put someone in a situation where when they're arguing with someone and they're so upset, you, t you say to them, Salli ala nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And out of their anger, they may reject you and say something that becomes kufr for them. So you don't want to throw out uh, hadith and things like that in the heat of the moment when fighting. So the hadith has its place. But it shouldn't be deployed in a combative scenario when the husband and wife are having conflict. Right? There's a time and place. 
But this is a hadith that everyone should take to heart. That the, the haq of the husband is that sexual access. It is what it is. Sadaqa Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this is a wa'id. It's a divine threat. Meaning it comes from wahi that the angels curse her. Now that curse, of course, can be lifted. You know, people can make tawbah and seek forgiveness and things can be repaired. But this shows you the right of the husband and how important it is. Other rights that he has upon her include her attention in good treatment, her loyalty and honesty in the home, her obedience in everything that is lawful and good. So these things are kind of interrelated, right? Loyalty and honesty in the home, attention and good treatment and obedience. Basically, this means that she is not going behind his back in the home doing things that he does not want her to do or do things that are uh, against the guidance of Allah and his messenger She doesn't live a double life when he's at work, you know, so there's loyalty, there's congruence between how she is in his presence and how she is in his absence and she's loyal to him. So that's a basic right. Another right is la'a, is obedience. And obedience here is not unconditional because there's no unconditional obedience to a human being except obedience to Rasulullah That is the only unconditional obedience we have to a human being. Every other human being, we give them conditional obedience. And that conditional obedience is not left up for us to decide, oh, I feel like it or I don't feel like it. I'll obey if it already agrees with what I wanted to do anyway. That's not obedience. That's just, it just coincides with what you want to do already. But obedience, the, the conditional obedience, is obedience in ma'roof. Obedience in what is wholesome, what is good, what is recognized as a standard and moral and ethical, all of these things. Now in Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah Ta'ala mentions in the verse, and they, women, have rights similar to those of their husbands, and over them, in what is ma'roof, but men have a degree over them. What is rijari alayhinna daraja, a degree over them. What is this degree? The ulama mentioned different things. They all come back to a single basic meaning. Al-Imam al-Jassas, the great Hanafi scholar and mufassir, he says that Allah tells us in this verse that each spouse has rights over the other and that the husband has one particular right over his wife, which she does not have over him. That's what it means. It means that there are shared rights and responsibilities, but in the case of men, there is one right that men have, husbands have, over the wife, that she does not have over him. And what is that right? It is the right of qiwama, authority, and, and leadership. Right? That, what is vested in men, that is something they have that uh, women do not have. And this is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that explicitly in the Quran. In Surah An-Nisa, Ar-Rijalu Qawwamuna Ala An-Nisa. Men are qawwamun over women by right of what Allah has given one over the other. Bima Allahu ba'dahum ala ba'd wa bima anfaqu. And due to what they spend for maintenance from their wealth. 
So you notice here in the slide that I don't translate Qawwamun. I leave it like this. Why? I leave it in Arabic because Qawwamun has a lot of different meanings. When you go to the books of Tafsir, uh, you find there's about half a dozen meanings that all go back to you know, a central theme, and that is the theme of leadership and authority, uh, giving guidance and instruction, as well as defense and protection, and provisioning and supporting them materially. So all of those meanings are wrapped up in that word, qawwamun. So read this verse using all of those words. Men have leadership or authority over women. They are to give guidance and instruction. They are to defend and protect and look after their women folk. They are to provide provision and support them materially and in other ways. That is something Allah Ta'ala has vested in men. It is taklif wa tashrif, but it's more taklif than tashrif, meaning it's more of a responsibility than uh, something we call an honor. It, it's an honor, but it's more of a responsibility. It's a weighty one at that. And the ulama talk at great length about the meaning of this verse in their tafasir and why Allah Ta'ala has said that men are qawwamun and what that means for the relationship. And they say that this qiwama is linked to two, two things. You see in the verse, it's very explicit. Allah Ta'ala mentions two things that are linked to the qiwama. Number one, بِمَا فَضَّلَ اللَّهُ بَعْضُهُمْ عَلَى بَعْضٍ Due to the fadl, right? could say virtue or, or some quality that Allah has given men over women. That's number one. وَبِمَا أَنْفَقُوا And due to what they spend. Right? So it's not just about spending money. It's provisioning, providing, supporting. And this other thing, this fadl. What is that fadl though? The ulama mentioned that this fadl uh, is divided into two types. There's the fadl that is inherent in the makeup the biology and the character of healthy manhood. And then there are the things that are in sharia that have been legislated for men and not for women. And this is what the fadl refers to, these two things. So you have the essential qualities that are inherent in healthy masculinity, power, capacity, labor, among other qualities. And then you have differences in legal rulings, different ahkam. So men are tasked with lesser and greater forms of political authority. Jihad, calling the adhan, leading the prayer, the imama, khutbas, witnessing in matters of hudud, prescribed punishments, and qisas. Uh, being burdened with paying the diya on behalf of the family member who killed someone accidentally. Right? These are things that the men bear the burden of. Right? Divorce, uh, lineage being patrilineal through the father. So these are all things that the sharia has decreed to go through men or to be done by men. And that has lessened the burden on the women. And then you have, of course, the first thing, which is those essential qualities, the, the biological makeup of men. Now people could say, oh, but you know, women, there's some women that are stronger than men. 
But that doesn't prove anything. That's the exception to the rule. We're talking about basic biological differences, right? It's not a part of the argument to say that there's an exception here and there. Those things don't prove that the rule is invalid, right? There are biological differences that Allah created between men and women. So that's the first thing, the fadl. وَبِمَا uh, أَنْفَقُوا That's the second aspect of qiwama. And that is the provisioning. This is important to understand because the ulama say that from this verse, if a man is unable to provide and maintain his wife financially, he is no longer a qawam over her. And this means that she will have the right to go and get the marriage contract annulled if he's not fulfilling his side of the contract because that is part of the purpose for which marriage is legislated. Right? There is this exchange, right? The contract is this exchange, a proposal and acceptance. She, before marriage, is under the, uh, she is the responsibility of her father financially. He is responsible for caring for her. She doesn't have to go get a job. It's his job to care for her. In the marriage, there's a transfer of financial responsibility from the father to the husband. And agreeing to take those expenses, the husband gets married to this who becomes his wife. If he's unable to provide, it defeats one of the purposes for which marriage was legislated, was to oversee that transfer of financial responsibility to care for her, which means she has an avenue to get that marriage annulled. Is that the first step she should take if the husband falls on hard times? No. There are other ways of dealing with that problems. Often those things are temporary, but from a technical perspective, if he is unwilling and or, or unable to provide, that avenue is there if he does not remedy it by finding a way to maintain and provide for her. Now, the other rights, we'll talk about these rather quickly, uh, is it's a right that he has upon the wife that she gets his permission before leaving the home. That doesn't have to be every single time she leaves the home. It could be a general permission, a general understanding that, okay, I'm fine with you, you know, going here or going there, right? But if there's no specific permission for something out of the ordinary, it is his right that she doesn't just tell him, honey, I'm going there, but it's expressed as I'm going there, i.e., you okay with that? Right? That's a basic right he has. He has a right to know where his wife is. Right? Likewise, her protecting his wealth and belongings in his absence. Right? This is, you think about in the, in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, people lived in mud houses. And they often didn't have doors. The doors were often uh, just cloths covering the entrance. So your wealth could, have, could be livestock out in the back. It could be gold and silver, dinars and dirhams inside. Uh, you have to make sure that you look after your stuff. And it's the wife's job when he's gone that she makes sure that no one's getting into that stuff and rummaging and stealing anything. You know, in our day and age, it just means yeah, you lock the door, you know, make sure there's no one coming into the house stealing stuff, you know, things like that. Um, likewise, her preserving her chastity and honor in his absence. Allah describes the believing women as hafiyat, 
So this means they protect their chastity, their honor, their dignity when the husband is away, right? And not admitting people into the house without his permission. These are rights the husband has. Now, we talked about uh, housework, didn't we? We said uh, taking care of the household issues. So is it an obligation on women to do housework? I'm, I'm, well, you know, Islam is not a democracy, so we're not taking a vote, but I want to ask to get you know, what, what you think, maybe what you heard or the opinion, maybe you studied the issue and you have a view or you think you know. What do you think? Is? Okay. Yeah. I, I saw a head shake. No. Yeah, well, it's a little bit of all of these views you guys are mentioning. Although in the Madiki school, since you're shaking your head, it's actually closer to being uh, an obligation. So the Fuqaha, of course, differed about this. Right? There's different opinions. The strictest view was that of Imam Abu Thawr. Abu Thawr had a madhab, but it died out. It wasn't preserved like the four that we have today. He had the strictest view, which was that it is an, a wajib, it is an obligation on wives to do household chores and things like that. Uh, on the other side of that spectrum, you have the view of Imam Shafi'i in the Shafi'i school, which is that women do not have any obligation to do housework. You have the Hanafi school, which says, it's an obligation based on the nature of the contract, but not a uh, amr dini, as like a religiously mandated or connected with ibadah, right? But it's conventionally obligatory because that's the nature of the contract and the way these things are historically. Uh, the Madikis are kind of in between, right? And the Hanbalis too. So there are differences here. And I want to clarify these differences and uh, give you, hopefully, a holistic way to understand this. Now, going back to what I said earlier, the way we talk about rights and responsibilities, it should not be limited to the bare minimum descriptions found in the books of law. The foundation of a happy marriage is ihsan, excellence, and ma'roof, right? What is recognized as wholesome and good. The fiqh details that describe the minimum should not be taken as the general rule for married life. Because if you think about it, two can play that game, right? You know, the wife, let's say the wife, you know, she can say, hey, I'm a shafi on this issue. I'm not doing anything in the house. I'm just gonna sit at home and watch TV. I don't have to cook, I don't have to clean. That's all on you, man. Sure, she can appeal to the shafi school and take that view, but guess what? If we're just going to appeal to fiqh minimums and technicalities, he could do the same thing. Okay, now, God forbid, she, gets, she comes down with uh, you know, a really bad cold or some, some other medical condition and she has to go to the hospital, God forbid, and she gets a hefty medical bill, he can say, honey, the majority of the ulama say that it is not an obligation on the husband to pay the wife's medical bills. You see how that works? Two can play that game. So if she's saying, I'm not doing anything in the house, and then he says, I'm not paying any of your medical bills, and that's all on you, 
you can deal with the bill collector and work out some deal. How is that going to be a happy marriage, right? So yes, those things do exist in the fiqh, but we don't appeal to them or use them as the recipe for a happy marriage. So yes, scholars differ about the question of whether it's an obligation for the wife to do housework, but all of them agree that it is generally recommended for her to do those things that are customary in her, her own urf, the custom of her people and her time and place and her social economic reality. Right? Think about the norm that she grew up in, in her household and all the households in her neighborhood and the people she knows. That norm for maintaining a house becomes the basic expectation when she gets married. So the ideal is to maintain that. That's recommended. Now, it's for this reason that some of the imams said, yes, it's an obligation on her to do the household chores, but only the ones that were customary for her and her family and those of her social economic uh, bracket, so to speak. You know, in Imam Madik's madhab, right? In the madhab, in the school of Imam Madik, if the woman comes from a very high social class, she's very wealthy, and she grew up with lots of maids or a couple of maids, she has the right to say, I want maids, because that's what she grew up in. But if she grew up in a more middle class or lower class background without maids and she did that kind of work, it's a basic social, social expectation that she does it. But on a technical note, no, it's not that it's wajib for her to cook that dinner on that night. It's just a general expectation that this is how things work based on their arf. Because these things are not specified, right? If you go back to the time of the Prophet you will find hadith after hadith where they talk about the marriage, uh, people getting married, and the husband doing certain tasks outside of the house, and the wife doing certain chores in the house. It was the norm. When Jabir anhu got married to the woman who was previously married, uh, you have the, or sorry, I'm misreading the hadith. The, the person in the hadith mentioned uh, uh, marrying a, a, a virgin, and he said, well, he's thinking about marrying someone who has experience with children, who can also care for the children and the things in the household. So that was a norm back then. So if the contract doesn't define the specific aspects of household chores, what defines what she should be doing as a basic role? The orf, the orf, the custom of the people, right? It's not a technical obligation that she has to do all of this stuff, but it's certain things that are just seen as normal, you know, in the custom of the people, right? And again, you have bare, you have bare minimums in fiqh. They're not the starting point or the ideal where one should settle at, right? But we have to say these things just so there's, there's clarity. You know, if the wife, as I said here, in the slide, if the wife refuses to do any cooking or housework and just sits at home, the husband could also give the bare minimum of the provision. He could say, you want steak? Can I give it to you twice a year, you know? Or just have lentils and rice. 
Like, that's not a recipe for a happy marriage, right? You can say, he's doing the bare minimum, he's fulfilling his obligations, and she can say, I'm doing the bare minimum, fulfilling my obligations. Am I blameworthy in Sharia? Well, maybe not. But are you having a happy marriage playing this kind of game? So, so housework and chores will differ among women of different classes and places. What the urban wife does is not like what the country wife does. And you see this across all societies. The wife is not obliged to work for the husband for free. That's something to clarify. When we say these basic household things, it's you know, basic cooking and cleaning and just house maintenance, stuff that the husband also gets involved in and does, as you, you noted. He, he was in the service of his family. He, was, he would sweep. Right? He would uh, mend his sandals. He would uh, milk the, 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 the sheep and do these things. Right? So these are norms. But we add to this that if the husband has work outside of the house, the wife is not obliged to work for the husband and help him in his money-making things for free. So let's say he is a, I don't know, let's say he, say he runs a bakery. Right? So running a bakery means you have to get the wheat. The wheat berries have to be crushed. Right, either in a machine or with a, a millstone. It has to be sifted and sorted. You have to make the yeast. You have to let it set. You have to roll it. You have to put it in the oven. You have to light the oven on fire. You got to do all this stuff. If he brings the wife into the bakery shop to do these things, that's not a part of her household obligations. That's not what she got married for. That's a part of his work for providing for his family. So if she is doing that kind of work, she is entitled to compensation. Right? So that has to be understood. She's not working for free just because she's the wife. The things that she's doing, quote-unquote, for free, are not even really for free. This is just a part of the marriage arrangement. Those are things in the house predetermined by their orf. Nothing to do with working outside of the house. Now that's going to differ from culture to culture because in some cultures, you know, you're going to drink milk, right? You're going to use milk for food. And if you have a cow, the wife will go outside and she will milk the cow. She's not doing that to make money for the husband. She's doing that to prepare the meal, right? He's out working. Just like the wife would have to go into the refrigerator and pull, pour, pull out the gallon of milk and pour it. Well, they have a more elaborate way of doing that than we do. But it's the same basic process, right? But she's not, um, she's not obliged to work for him in his business or anything like that. It's not a part of it. So that's the husband's rights, in a nutshell. Now to the wife's rights. I'm not leaving the wives out. Number one is the mahar. That's the right of the wife, and that's even before the marriage takes place. But at the marriage, she has the right to receive this mahar. And we could add sexual access to these rights as well, but we already talked about the parameters of that. That applies to the wife as well. Among the rights of the, the wife is the nafaqah, the provision. And the ulama talk about provision from different angles. They talk about food, they talk about clothing and shelter. And they say that when you talk about nafaqah or provision, it usually revolves around these three things. Food, shelter, and clothing. Right? So they say that in terms of food, like, so let's put the question to husbands. You get married... Uh, you have to provide for your wife, you have to give her food, 
What determines the kind of food and the quantity? Can you just bring a bag of rice and say, here you go, and I'm going to go off to work and you have food? Technically, you have food, but who wants to live on rice by itself with no salt and pepper and nothing else? Is he fulfilling the obligation just by giving a bag of rice? No, he's not. Because the nafaqa, the provision of food, is determined by what is customary. That's a word we keep coming back to. Customary, meaning the urf of the people. Customary based on the time and the place of the wife. So, if you are living in Morocco, for instance, and you're living in a village, a customary staple will be couscous and certain vegetables and certain meats and certain spices and you know so you you need as a husband if you're there to provide those things if you're in a place like pakistan i don't know what those would be i assume rice i assume dal like lentils i assume certain spices i assume certain vegetables and fruits and a certain amount of meat that is customary for that place, that time, that social economic bracket. Some people have more meat than others, right? So it all depends. So it's custom specific. But included in the nafaqa for food is the cookware. So as the husband, you have to pay for the pots and the pans, the forks and the spoons, the knives, the cutlery, all of that stuff. That's on you. As well as the means of preparing it, the food, I mean, the, the, the gas, the cook, the fuel, whatever you use for that, that's the job of the husband. So the means of cooking the food is also an obligation. For clothing, they say a minimum is summer and winter clothing. And replacements for these things as they wear out, and as well as bedding and footwear. What determines the standard? The orf, what is customary, right? This doesn't mean that you have to buy your wife 50 pairs of shoes. But doesn't mean either that you just give her a pair of sandals and you stitch them up once a year, right? There's obviously a spectrum here. It's neither this nor that. And it's based on the custom, where you are and your social economic bracket, the two of you. What is normal? What is ma'roof? So ma'roof for you and me in 2022 would really be luxurious 150 years ago. If you think about it, think about the clothes in your closet, your shoes, the belongings you have, all of that would be seen as very luxurious by the standards of most people in the pre-modern era. But it's not luxurious for us because it's just the norm of everybody in a basic social economic bracket. So ma'roof is what is normal for your, your area. Uh, the same goes for shelter. It is, the right upon, uh, it is the right of the wife upon the husband that he provides her shelter. The size and the quality is based on the orf. His orf or hers. It's hers. It's based on what is customary for her, what she's used to, what she's accustomed to. Can she decide to live in a place that is, uh, 
smaller or of a lower standard than what she grew up with, sure, she can relinquish that, right? Right? Things happen, you know, people move or they don't find the right place or they fall in hard times. These things happen. But basically, it's her right that she lives in a place that's the same size and quality as what she's used to based on what's customary for her. And there's some details about this. There's some tafsil in the books of fiqh, but she can also stipulate that she's not living with in-laws. That means that it's not, you can't force your wife to live with your mom and dad for 15 years. If that's what you want to do and she's cool with that, she's okay with that, okay, fine. But she has the right to live separately from in-laws. So these are rights of the wife. She also has the right to ihsan, kind treatment. That's a right. She has the right to the equitable division of time and provisions in the event of her having co-wives. So should he ever get a second wife or a third wife, that's her right that she has a fair share, equitable division of time and resources. So if that husband has two wives, right, he can't spend one week with one and two days with the other, give this one ribeye steak every night for dinner and ice cream and give this one rice and lentils. That's just not fair. It has to be equal across the board. And that's the way it is. Likewise, it is her right that he does not subject her to darar, harm, verbal, physical, or otherwise. If he resorts to physical or verbal harm, he is violating her rights. And there are many examples of this in the seerah, where people, women, would come to the Prophet ﷺ complaining about some verbal or even physical darar, harm they received at the hands of their husbands. And the Prophet ﷺ was educating the wives and the husbands about the rights and responsibilities. That's a right, it's a basic right. Uh, number seven, not interfering with or taking from her personal wealth. The husband has no right to her, her money. The husband has no right to her money. We don't believe in this nonsense that, uh, what do they say? Uh, oh yeah, that too, but uh, there's the famous saying, it's so famous that I can't remember what it is right now. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Uh, what's mine, uh, or a woman would say, what's mine is mine, and what's his is mine. That's not accurate. What's, what's his is his, and what's yours is yours. And it's his responsibility in the sharia of Allah to take what is his and spend on you, to provide for you, to take care of your needs. It doesn't mean that it becomes your money, you know, where you could just dip in and out as you wish. If... If the husband, you know, people have joint accounts, right? There has to be a mutual understanding about what's being purchased. It's not a free card to just buy whatever unless they come to an agreement about amounts and time periods and, you know, these kinds of things. It has to be by taradin. It has to be mutual consent if she's using his money. So by the same token... He doesn't have a right to her money. So on the one hand, she has a right to his money in the sense of nafaqa, but he has no right to her money. Does that mean that she should never spend her money on her husband? No. Again, we're defining just rights, responsibilities, minimum thresholds. We're not defining the minimum, or not, we're not defining the, the maximum or ihsan. 
a person may fall under hard times and the wife may use some of her money to help him out. She has a right to ask for that back and give it as a, as a loan, or she has a right to give it a sadaqah and she receives a reward. You know, ideally, people avoid those situations, but it's her money. He can't force her. He can't say, I'm having a hard time. You have to give me the money. She has no legal obligation to do that. That doesn't mean that she should sit with you know, a, f- a fat bank account while he's unemployed and suffering and depleting his account, just taking care of everything and getting stressed and depressed, and she just sits there. What are you going to do? If she needs to help him, it's a blessing and reward for her to do that, but he has no right to demand that of her. So it's important to make a distinction between uh, what is ihsan and what is uh, a right or responsibility or a minimum threshold, right? So uh, these are the rights and responsibilities of husbands and wife. And as I said in the beginning, it's important to know these things while understanding that they describe bare minimums. You need to make sure that you're, you're, you're floating above water here. If you're sinking below the water, you're drowning. You need to make sure that your head is above the water, but ideally you want to get on the shore. <laughs> you don't want to be just sitting with your head above water, barely fulfilling the obligations on your spouse, giving them their rights, thinking that by doing the bare minimum, we're going to have a really happy marriage. Here's your lentils, sweetie. And take care of your own medical bills while you're at it. That's not a recipe for success. So you need to know the rights that are owed to you so that you're not abused or taken advantage of. But you also need to know the rights of your spouse so that you can make sure you're fulfilling them while aspiring to go above and beyond those bare minimums. Right? So if you look at these rights, we'll go back to the beginning. Right? Uh, Where are we? Is there a minimum threshold of attention? <laughs> what does that look like? You know, attention and good treatment. What's the bare minimum? Just a high? You know, and the rest of the day it's cold? And they could say, well, you know, I gave you good treatment. I didn't yell at you. That's not a recipe for success. Just good treatment. You know, go above and beyond. Loyalty and honesty, obedience, managing and maintaining the home, all of these things. And for the for the uh, the wife, right? He shouldn't give her the bare minimum of food or clothing or shelter. He should not give the minimum of kind treatment. Where he's just saying, "Okay, well, I'm not shouting at you, so I'm treating you okay." Uh, that's how you do it. You don't look at these as your ideal to aim for. You look at them as the minimum to not dip below in your married life. So that, inshallah, covers the fault ayn for marriage, inshallah ta'ala. It, we, we haven't talked about the issues of marital discord and how to manage that and the matters of divorce. Our next class will be about those, those things. We'll do it in one class because it's not... It is a complex topic, but the complexity of divorce has more to do with the people who are officiating the divorce than the husband and the wife themselves. Really, we could boil it down to about 15 minutes if we wanted to. 
but we'll talk about nushuz, marital dis or recalcitrance or rebellion, what that is, resolving things, right? And the process of divorce. And we'll do it all in one class, inshallah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasulu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions? I think this was the most important of all of the classes on marriage was this one. Yet there's no hands up. Okay, down there. I don't know. I have not come across that particular mas'ala. But it remains a duty on him. The ideal is for him to pay it all at once in the beginning. It's okay if she allow if she has him defer it by paying part in the beginning and part later. I haven't come across that particular issue to be honest. So I'd have to look into it. Yeah, I don't recall. The, the mahar can be tangible or intangible. But so tangible would, would be things that are considered mal, wealth. So money or items. So the question would be one, I would need to look into that to give you a more precise answer. The, the issue is that it's, we have to be careful here, right? Because it, it is the haq and it's not her right to say that she won't take a mahar. It's something she has to demand. And there's a minimum threshold for it, a minimum given by the, the ulama. So the idea of forgiving it after the fact is, seems like it is circumventing that. So I would need to look into the issue. Yeah, I see what you're saying. She she has a right to be sheltered in something similar in size and quality to what she grew up in and is accustomed to. And we're not talking about the whole property, you know. We're talking about the living quarters itself and the size and quality of that. But at the same time, though, if she... Uh, wants to relinquish some of those rights by saying, I grew up in this really large house and that's the standard I grew up with, but I want to be married and I understand that we're going to be living in a, uh, a basic two-bedroom apartment for a while and that over time as our family grows, we'll get a three-bedroom, maybe a townhouse, maybe a home in the future. And I'm happy with that and that's what I want course it's not that you have to uh, or you, you you have to give her the same exact size by square footage it's just that 
there's certain she shouldn't be expected to uh, go into a house that's a lower quality or size than what she grew up in unless she's okay with that right you can't you, it can't be an ex- expectation upon her she has a right to certain standards yeah just as as husbands we uh, future husbands have a right to certain standards in uh, what he's looking for in a spouse so it cuts across both ways it's just that the standards for the woman are based on their urf in terms of uh, what factors into our nafaqa for food, clothing, shelter, and so on. Yeah. One more. Yeah, these things should be arrived at by mutual discussion. Yeah, it should be through mutual discussion. And if it's through mutual discussion and he agrees to contribute to that, in the event of something or or even without that he can he agrees to help her help her out in that that's fine if she goes and does it on her own the i'm not aware of uh any of the fuqaha saying that he is obliged to care for or pay the expenses of those means of transport when he has his own in his own means Again, that's a technical question. It's like, technically, he doesn't have to, but should he, given the circumstances, the social economic realities, and what's needed in the household based on the size and where they're located and the work schedule? You know, these are things that they have to determine on their own, and it may be a wise thing that he's the one contributing to that, if not handling it on his own, because that's a means of his own... uh, maintenance for the needs of the household. Does that make sense? Yeah. Would you that so, the, yeah, the brother's asking about is the husband obligated to, I guess, purchase a vehicle for his wife if he already has one? Uh, or, you know, what is what are his responsibilities if she purchases one, I guess, without his, without his permission or without his knowledge? And as I said in the answer, that should be something discussed between the two of them and it may be something he wants to do that becomes his purchase as a part of maintaining his own household based on their own unique needs. Like if a person, I can think of an example here. Let's say a person uh, drives a truck. So he's out on the road a lot. Should he not uh, leave the wife with a car? If they live in a place where the groceries are really far out and to get to places requires a car. Sure, she could take public transportation, but would you want your wife to be on public transportation if you could help it? In that case, you should provide the means of her getting to the grocery store 
You could almost make an analogy here. I'm hesitant to do so, but you could almost make an analogy to the fuel for cooking. It is the means of securing the nafaqah, securing the food, if you're out on the road because of the nature of your job, right? So that's not a fatwa, but that's just thinking through the issue. That would be probably be a wise decision. Wallahu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam